0: Listener emails and green comet observations on episode 301 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky. And I'm wondering, did anybody see comet E3ZTF as
1: green? Did you, Shane? I did not. I saw it as gray, uh, pretty much like every other comet I've looked at. And from what I've been reading, a lot of the visual observations, I, I don't think I've seen anybody report colors yet, but uh, certainly in the photographs, it's uh, it's a nice green. Cool. So, oh, we should do a couple or a few Patreon
0: uh, thank yous to uh, Gene, Chris, and Dave, who recently increased their Patreon support. We really appreciate it. Your financial support both helps keep the show going, as costs do sometimes creep up, and that's all good, but uh, it also helps to motivate us to keep going. So thank you so much uh, for your increased donations and for everybody else who continues to donate.
1: Yeah, big thanks to all of those folks.
0: I thought maybe we would start with a uh, a few podcast updates Shane. So uh, this is gonna come out after our hopefully live presentation with the Kitchener Waterloo Center as as episode 300. This will be three hundred and one and we're uh, sort of progressing towards uh getting that show released. But uh, this week we sort of have had a, a very exciting milestone that, uh, that we
1: passed as far as our downloads or listens were concerned. Yeah, we hit 250,000. So thanks to everybody for uh, contributing to that. Uh, you know, Chris, you mentioned kind of the motivation and, and certainly just knowing people are listening, uh, is motivation too. So it's great to, uh, to hit that. And, uh, I guess the next big one is 300,000. So that'll probably come sooner than we expect.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of fun to do it and and to watch those uh, those downloads. One thing that that I watch quite a bit, as you know, Shane is is I'll watch to see how quick um, the downloads are happening to determine how interested people are in a particular episode. Because um, we've noticed that the more interested people are, or the or the different promotional tactics we might use to get the show out there, will determine by a pretty huge margin. How many downloads that show gets, it's uh, quite surprising. Some shows will only get a few hundred downloads within the first, uh, you know, 10 or 12 hours. Uh, another show might get, uh, you know, quite a bit more, maybe uh, two or three times as much. So it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, a few of the things that we're working towards, though, is we're we're doing a few more... Um, Interviews or having guests on—it wasn't so much planned as just working out that way. Um, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. How about you, Shane?
1: Oh yeah, I love talking to uh, other folks in the hobby, and and again, sort of one of the um, unexpected benefits of starting this podcast is the connections that we've made, like that, Chris, and having the conversations, you know, with Dave and Mark Radici, and on and on. You know, we've. We probably should have a list and, and a count because I'm not sure what our count is in terms of guests, but it's quite a few, certainly well over well into the double digits. And now that we have, you know, kind
0: of regularly, each episode's getting it getting about a thousand listens. um, you know, which isn't huge by any kind of standard. but we're not we're not necessarily going for the largest number. If we wanted to get the largest number, we would simply take. The big astronomy topic of the week, uh, spin that into an episode, and then have like ten thousand listens or hundred thousand listens or something. We're trying to do a podcast on amateur astronomy, and that's that's our goal and that's our focus. So we we would rather have like that thousand people who are actual amateur astronomers like us listening to the podcast, which I think is more or less what we have. Um, but we also have many um, sort of friends and then sort of online people that that we've uh, forged uh, connections with. Um, and, and kind of before we had, you know, in a way like enough listeners to, to bring in guests, it was sort of fun just to have our friends and, and other amateurs that we know listening in and the odd time we, we would just bring somebody in because, um, they'd been writing us a, about a topic, uh, like I know Bill, Bill Weir had written us about a few things where we're like, Hey, can, you know, let's just come on the show and mm-hmm. let's, let's talk about it. Like big telescope observing or, or some of the other topics that, uh, that we've had them on about, um, but now we're kind of getting to the point where we sort of have enough listeners um Mark Radici from Refreshing Views uh, reached out cuz he's he's going down to the Winter Star Party and uh, when you hear this it'll be like uh he'll be down there i think and when he comes back we're going to talk to him about the Winter Star Party and we heard a lot of feedback from uh, Dave Chapman's uh stars you should know and uh working to arrange with him to come on um in March and then uh o- old friend of mine was was uh, contacted by Dave about listening to the show. And he wrote us a really nice email saying he had been listening to the show and and was sending along his uh, kind words of encouragement and support. So uh, we're going to have Craig Levine on who I think people will be really interested to hear what Craig has to say Um I've known Craig I for like twenty five or thirty years. Like he was one of the first people I met when I joined an astronomy club, and uh, and one of the things that's interesting about uh, Craig is that he uh, he's a gear collector, and so he has a lot of interesting like uh, 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 you know home built telescopes like thirteen inch Dobsonian. He's got some astrophysics equipment, and then he's recently. Um, going to receive a gift from his brother, who is also a gear collector, because his brother is too busy to do amateur astronomy anymore. And so Greg is going to kindly hold his gear for him and he's going to come on and talk to us about that equipment that's coming in. So that should be uh, pretty interesting uh, as far as a very gear centric conversation goes. So I'm excited for that one. I think you'll really enjoy it, Shane.
1: Yeah, yeah, that sounds super interesting. Um, looking forward to that. I'm
0: working on hopefully getting an observatory built. I've kind of I've uh, been been saving up for I forget it my wife told me how many years it was it's hard to believe sort of squirreling away the money for for a long time since even before I I really had you know bought any kind of land to put an observatory on it was always sort of my thought that I would get one and uh so uh I'm thinking about maybe maybe making something to to put out with uh with that we'll we'll see how that goes yeah right on so we had uh we had a question from from Jean, um, do you want to do you want to read what
1: Gene wrote, or do you want me to read it? it? Doesn't matter. Yeah, I can read it. Yeah, go for it. Um, so Gene said, "If you think it's show worthy, I'd love to hear why you recommend Sky and Telescopes Sky Atlas versus the other ones. Uh, there's one that's enormous, ones that are black and white, laminated, unlaminated, etc. Would also love to hear how you mark it up, um, or how you plan your night, or how you use it in real time." probably some common sense stuff, but I'd love to hear your thoughts and, uh, sorry, your thoughts, if you think others would as well. Um, I think this is a great topic. Uh, what do you think, Chris?
0: Yeah, I I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, We, uh, we did a bit of a, an episode on this a while back, but I, I think that these are really, uh, nice brief questions. So first of all, Shane, I, I'll just say the reason why I recommend the, uh, the pocket Atlas, and then maybe you can, you can chime in. I think you might have a slightly different recommendation. So I, I think I'm the one that kind of pumps the, the, uh, sky and telescope pocket Atlas a little bit more than the others. And one of the reasons is, is that it's a very affordable Atlas. I think for a long time, it was around $20 American, maybe it's like 25 now, but it's very affordable. It's based on Will Tyrion's uh, Sky Atlas 2000, which was sort of the, uh, um, the the first big recommended sky atlas uh, for people to buy except that this one's much smaller and more convenient to carry around the sky atlas 2000 is uh, is a very large atlas so i think the the Pocket Atlas or whatever it's called, I think you can buy it in a few different versions, but it's basically like regular book size. It doesn't quite fit in a pocket, at least no pocket that I have, um, but it's really not much bigger than a, than a pocket. It definitely fits well in with your observing gear versus Sky Atlas 2000. You almost need to take like a separate table out with you uh, to use. Um, and the Sky Atlas 2000 was, and it may still be as far as I know, um, available and, uh, you can get black on white laminated, unlaminated color edition. Uh, the pocket Atlas just comes with the black stars on the white background and the pocket Atlas also draws in the main constellation, um, patterns. So it makes it easy for people who are transitioning from just using like an all sky map to a more dedicated, uh, star atlas. So I think it, it helps in, uh, in that transition versus some of the other atlases, like the enormous, uh, Gene referred to the enormous one. I'm thinking he's referring to Uranometria. I have a copy of that, which it's like the, uh, I don't know, it's, it's just a massive book. I think it weighs, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like eight pounds or something like that. I have it. It's, it's awesome. It's so zoomed in and huge though. It, it can be a bit of a challenge to use. You almost need to have like the pocket atlas to use as, as a starting point and then use the urinometria to zoom in, you almost, at least for me anyway, I know other people might be better at using it than I am. Uh, I have to like use a intermediary Atlas, um, to, to actually make the urinometria worthwhile. But, uh, but Shane, what's your recommendation? Cause I think you use the double star Atlas or something like that a little bit more than, uh, than maybe I do.
1: Nope. Nope. It's all about pocket sky, uh, the pocket sky Atlas for me as well. Um, I love that one. It's um, like you mentioned, it's inexpensive. So that's great because, you know, if you're using an atlas at the eyepiece, uh, it means that it's probably collecting dew throughout the night. And it also means that it probably is going to get, you know, knocked around and fall on the ground because that's just what happens when you're observing in the dark. And if I happen to damage it, I'm not too, you know, um, unhappy because it's inexpensive and I can go buy a new one if I want. It's readily available. Uh, so I think it's, it's the ideal Atlas at the eyepiece, uh, again, largely due to its size. Um, it covers everything you could probably want to know in, in the night sky, unless you're really starting to get into faint stuff, uh, because you have a, you know, larger aperture, you, you may want some of the other, uh, atlases because they go a little deeper in terms of magnitude, but no, I love the pocket sky Atlas. I do have the Cambridge double sky or double star Atlas um, that. I don't actually use all that much, uh, as an Atlas, but I do love the, uh, double star lists that they have in there. And, and sometimes I use those as references for my double star observing. Uh, but I also have Uranometria. Uh, I have Sky Atlas 2000, both laminated and not laminated. Um, <laughs> I have, um, uh, what is that other one that we have? The, Interstellarium. Yeah. 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 That one too. That's, um, that's my most used
0: Atlas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's a few reasons why uh, Ronald Stoyan created it. And um, one of the atlases, which isn't really quite an atlas that I used um, very heavily before and still do, is the Cambridge Photographic Atlas, mm. which which is more like a, it's sort of unfortunate in a way because they made it more like a bookshelf book. It has like these beautiful glossy pages, and, but I like the selection sort of off the beaten track, like. Asterisms and star clusters that aren't in many of the other atlases. And I love them. They're they're really great for small telescopes. And sort of on the left side, you have a chart. And the chart is based as a negative or based on a negative of a photograph that's on the right side. I really like it, although there's some small areas of the sky that are missing, or there's like overlap in weird spots. But in general, I like that. So when he came out with interstellarium, Um, which is uh, more like like just a regular proper atlas, no photographs. It's just like this very heavy-duty paper that can be used outside. I was like, oh, I'm going to get that. The things that I like about Interstellarium are it is big, but it's not that big. I can still take it out, Mm -hmm. use it on my observing table, but there's still room for like my eyepiece case and other stuff that I have around. It's very heavy-duty. So even though I've used and abused that atlas pretty darn good because – I'm out in the field. I'm not really taking care of my stuff that well, to be frank, folks. Um, but that atlas is still pretty much just like new. There's a few like little creases in that on the, you know, cover pages and that. But it's fine. Um some people don't like it. So the things that I like about it are that it has labels for filter types for different nebulae. It has the lines drawn in for the constellation, which allows me to quickly orientate myself, like especially when I'm tired. And then, um, uh, you know, I think I think it has nice sky coverage. Some of the shortcomings, and some people don't like it. I do like it. I recommend it. Um, but again, it's pretty deep and involved, more so than the Pocket Atlas. And I think it would overwhelm somebody who is just buying an atlas for the first time. So I think maybe they're, the the Pocket Atlas is a better place to start, especially since like I have an interest in sort of more of the off beaten path stuff, and they do include that in inter- Interstellarium. Some of the things that people don't like. And I and I gotta say I agree with the criticism that the index, the indices, um, or like the the key, the pages that kind of tell you, you know, which charts have which constellations. For some reason, I don't find it very intuitive, like the like just the way they have it laid out. I always find it like really difficult to find the chart, like which chart is Orion on. Like I almost have to like remember it. And then, um as well, sometimes they use like sort of different names and off the beaten path uh, names. And one of the reasons for that is is that this is an atlas um, that comes off a uh, press in Europe. and then and it's also heavily influenced, I think, by um, astronomers in in Africa as well and and in some other places. So it's more in a way, like a global atlas. It doesn't necessarily use. The same common names for objects that we might traditionally think of things in North America, so that can be uh, one of the challenges. Anyway, that that's just a little review, Shane. Do you have any insight into your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I love Interstellarium. Um, it's probably of you know of all of the atlases we've talked about, it's the only other one that I can in, that that is easy to use at the eyepiece because it's not in like it's not in an enormous physical sized book, but it you know it goes into a ton of detail. It's spiral bound. Um, the other thing I really like about interstellarium is the the uh, optional guide that you can purchase. And mm-hmm. what I like about the guide is it basically highlights all of the key deep sky objects um, that are uh, you know, in the Atlas, but then it also shows these uh, objects through different apertures and it's sketches and photographs. So what I like about that is it um, it gives you an idea of what you should see. But it also then has a breakdown of uh, like it's a chart for for uh, each um, uh, like atlas page I guess, and that chart lists the deep sky objects, but it also lists them according to recommended aperture to observe them. So at a quick glance, if you're observing with a four inch refractor like you and I do, uh, you can quickly see oh you know it's these five NGCs I should probably mm-hmm. target as opposed to you know skipping the ones that are you know listed for say a twelve inch aperture. Um so I, I do enjoy the uh the guide. I find it quite useful for planning your session um prior to going out.
0: When you're when you are planning a session, um that that's sort of a good way. So so you use the um the guide for Interstellarium, which is a whole separate book, which mm-hmm. is almost the same size as interstellarium itself. And then um you use the interstellarium, but do you do any markup or do you just kind of okay on these pages? Um, I'm going to focus on these objects. Then you kind of just sort of get interstellarium open to those pages, or do you do any other markup or any other way of, of noting where in the charts you're going to be looking?
1: Yeah, I do markup. And then this is a a tip I stole from you and it's using those little post-it arrows, um, Mm -hmm. you know, so what I'll do is figure out what objects I want to observe. Um, I will put these post-it arrows, uh, pointing to the object. Um, that I want to see. And I usually write like the NGC number on the post-it note. Um, And this way, you know, I know exactly what to look for when I'm actually observing later on in the night. Um, But it also doesn't like destroy my Atlas. When I'm done observing those objects, I can rip the post-it arrows off there. There's no damage. And I, you know, just kind of repeat that process. And I never did that in the past. You Mm -hmm. know, at night I would always have my observing list But then I found I was spending, you know, I wouldn't say a significant amount of time, but you do spend time just trying to find the object in the atlas. (laughs) And that's the least enjoyable time at the telescope. (laughs) Totally. And, you know, under a red light and it's just not that fun. Yeah. Um, So doing it ahead of the observing session uh, was revolutionary, you know, and being able using those post-it notes is is definitely the way to go. I, I would never observe without doing that now.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I do the exact same thing, um, you know, and, and people can develop their own method of doing this, but I've, I've used post-it notes to both mark the, sometimes just to mark the Atlas pages. So like I was saying, um, the, uh, the index isn't as good as, as I think it could have been an in interstellarium. So I just take a post-it note and just like this these are the charts for Orion or these are the charts for whatever constellations I'm going to look at. And then if I'm like, sometimes I'm just like, okay, I'm not sure what I'm going to look at in those those charts. I'm going to just work it through. I'll just do that. But then if there's like particular things that I'm going to look at, then I'll just, uh, I, I've even been able to find like little arrow stickies. It's not like a full post, note, they're just like a little sticky. And then I'll just sort of, sometimes I'll just stick them on because maybe there's only two or three objects that kind of know what they are. Or uh, or if I'm going to do like 10 or 12 objects, then like Shane, I'll I'll write them in in big letters. So then you're not kind of straining to see which is NGC 5048 and which is NGC 50, 51 or like whatever they are. So, mm-hmm. anyway.
1: well, in an advantage to the post-it arrows is like they're translucent as well. That's right. Um, yeah. So even though they're sort of covering up some of your Atlas, you can see through it, which is yeah. nice. Um, yeah. They're little. Yeah. These.
0: Yeah. yeah. And people should be able to find these anywhere. Like I, and they're pretty inexpensive. So you can, this is like one of those little tips and tricks, I think like, um, you know, when people are getting started, it's the, the red light and. You know, getting a good guide like Night Watch and a few other things like that, and then kind of once people get the telescope, I think getting a good guide like uh, whether it's Sky Atlas 2000, especially laminated if you're going to use it in the field, or Uranometria if you really want to dive deep and have a big scope, or or uh, Interstellarium if if you're sort of uh, somewhere in the middle like we are, then uh, then just just using these these sticky notes can can be very helpful. <laughs> we had our first email from somebody that's. That's in New Zealand, not somebody that just visited New Zealand. I think we've had a couple people that message us with visiting New Zealand. But uh, shall I read this one from Andrew? Yeah, sure. I'm probably going to say this wrong, but Andrew starts with uh, Kira Ora from the other land down under, which is New Zealand. Um, First, the usual introduction and background. I'm very new to astronomy and recently came across your podcast and I'm hooked. Well, thanks, Andrew. We appreciate you listening and writing. Currently, um, my rate of consumption is about three episodes every two days. Clearly, you have to keep up the cadence to keep up with my addiction. We will do our best. (laughs) We have people who go through and and listen to the entire podcast. series of podcasts that that we've uh put out and I think that was a big surprise to me, maybe less so for you, Shane. But when we were doing this, I thought, well, as people find the show and then listen to it, they'll just sort of listen to it from kind of more or less where they caught in, or maybe they would go back and just listen to a few past episodes. But it seems like a lot of people do go and listen to the uh the full run.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh that's great. Uh there's some of this stuff is time sensitive and um probably has expired, but some of it, you know, lives on and, and is just a good reference. So there's, um, there's definitely some good information back there uh, for folks that maybe haven't listened to all of them.
0: So he goes on to say, uh, now the agony aunt question, that must be a, a New Zealand phrase. I do like it though. Uh, I currently have a 10 inch Dobsonian with a fairly good IP selection and have been loving it. My main issue is setup time and dragging it out of the house. Not exactly grab and go. So I've been looking to get a complementary refractor, probably a SkyWatcher 102 um, or something similar. The dilemma is that a Televue 76, which is an f 6.3 uh, three inch telescope with diagonal and rings, has come up for sale uh, at a very good price. I'm building a new home and so while I could possibly swing the the Skywatcher, I really want the TV76 but this would probably entail giving up the Dobsonian. Just wondering how much I will be losing visually by making that call. It is a huge aperture loss, but I imagine the wide field views through the 76 would be fantastic. The only thing making me consider this is that I know in the future another dog will be fairly easy to get. However, the 76, the teleview 76, is a scope that I would have a great deal of trouble getting past uh his uh, significant other. Um concludes by saying, Nah, Mia, which I, I'm sure I'm not saying correct, and uh and signs off as Andrew. So uh Shane, I, I think. The the uh, the the question is: Keep the ten inch daub, get a less expensive uh, four inch acromat, or sacrifice the ten inch dob and go for the three inch wide field apochromatic telescope. What what are your thoughts on this? Where, where, where would you go? How would you handle this?
1: Well, first off, there's not a, a bad choice here. <laughs> this, this is all really good, uh, really good options to have. Um, oh, geez. I just yanked on a cord. Sorry. About That's that. okay. Um, I think some of this too depends, I think on what he wants to observe um, and how you want to observe. Uh, what would I do in this case? Uh, you know, it, I would probably try to keep the 10 inch for sure. But, um, you know, one of the things he mentioned was in New Zealand, um, the used market isn't like super robust. So you you don't have a lot of options, um, to, to buy used gear. And when something good pops up, you really have to jump on it. Uh, the Teleview 76 would be one of those apples you, you know, you buy once and you've, you've You've got that checked off for the rest of your life. You know, that's a great three inch refractor, pretty hard to beat. Um, So, you know, if the price was right, I guess I would probably side with where I think Andrew was already going, which is do what I have to, to get the Teleview 76. Enjoy that. Uh, You know, the, the ability to observe a lot more with a small grab and go like that is, is uh, quite you know, quite astonishing to me. Um, you know, when I got my little three inch, uh, I couldn't believe how much I used it, um, which was great. Uh, so, you know, there's that factor there too. Um, so yeah, I think I'd probably jump on the Teleview 76 and then sort the rest out later. You know, if it means selling the the 10 inch, so be it, uh, you can, you can always rebuy that at a future point in time.
0: I think, you know, Shane, I, th- I think you make, um, a good argument here. and. I think just based on how I've seen you navigate these things cuz I feel like I feel like Andrew's more of of your mindset and if if he or like anybody else like we just do this for fun we're you know and if if he's thinking you know what I really want to try a little refractor this is going to have to be the choice this is kind of what I want to do should I do it you know what just go and do it mm-hmm. if that's if that's what you want to do and like, this is uh, just supposed to be something fun that we're all doing. And you think that's going to be fun for you go and try it. If a uh, teleview 76 is available in your area, otherwise it's difficult to get when you use it for three or four weeks, maybe use it for three or four weeks, then sell the dob If you get it and then you're like, you know what? I just can't live with the small scope. Everybody's different. I remember I had a person in my class and they were, um, somebody who, who did some um, different work and they were, they were somebody who was really fit and everything. And I thought, you know what, this person is a great candidate for like a 10 inch dog because they're going to have no trouble moving it around. They had a vehicle. Um, I think It was a work vehicle or something like that. All their vehicles, a 10 inch job would have no trouble going in and they'd like to go to dark sky sites. And I said, you should get a 10 inch job. This is going to be a great fit for you. Well, it turned out that it wasn't my recommendation was totally wrong. And, and they end up going with, uh, I think in the end, they end up going with like a, like a four-inch um, refractor of some sort. And so it it just goes to show that everybody is different. Even though you've been using the 10-inch dob, you might get that three-inch and say, you know what? This is the telescope for me, and I'm just totally good with having a really good three-inch apochromat. But you won't know it until you try it. I say, you want to try it? Go for it. Just do it. This is not going to be the worst decision you make in your
1: life. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And you know, the other thing too, that just came into my mind, Chris is going back to that point he mentioned about New Zealand doesn't have a strong, uh, or I shouldn't say strong, but there's not a lot of gear being sold in New Zealand. So the yeah. use market is a little thin. Um, if he gets the 76 and he doesn't like it, he can uh, turn it. Yeah. I, I bet yeah. he would sell it very quickly. So you it's sort of, uh, like you're just protected on all fronts here. You'll, you'll buy it and love it, or you'll buy it and maybe not love it. And then you can easily sell it.
0: But then the other thing is, is that say he decides that he doesn't like little refractors, but he he liked the ten inch quite a bit more. Well, then maybe the decision is, you know what? Go for the twelve. Go for the sixteen. Mm-hmm. Like really, go for the telescope then, because yeah. now you know that you're somebody. Like that's I was talking to my buddy Peter. We're gonna have him on the show, or he would have already been on the show by the time people hear this. Anyway, and he went and bought a five inch apochromat. Um, maybe in part from my influence after looking through mine so much. And then he came back to me and said, you know what? It was fun, really great views. And he bought like an astrophysics, bought like the best five-inch pocker you can get 130 millimeter EDF, something or other. But he said, You know what? I'm a big daub guy. That's what I like. I like to have my 24-inch daub. That's me. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that at all. That's mm-hmm. that's Peter. I'm a little bit different. Shane's a little bit different. I'm sure Andrew's going to going to really sort this out. So Andrew might come back and say, you know what? I want a 20-inch dob. I want a 25-inch dob. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to use this for a while, save up my money, sell this once I get close, and then fund that 25-inch dob. And you haven't wasted any time or money. You've had a different experience. You've learned a few different things. Either way, you're going to become a better observer, and you're going to learn something. I think it's a good idea. Go yep, for it.
1: Agreed. Yep.
0: Love hey, it. Glenn wrote us an email and some advice from his Australia Observing Sessions. Uh, Do you want to read this one, Shane?
1: Yes. Uh, Let me just pull this up. I can read it if you're... Hi, Chris and Shane. Uh, Thanks for all of your efforts creating the show, enjoying it very much. Uh, Listening to episode 291, I think uh, think you were after viewing uh, information for the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, I use the Astronomy Yearbooks and Planisphere from... Uh, what is it here? Quasarastronomy.com.au uh for all of my viewing in Oz. Hope this helps, kind regards. Um so appreciate that, Glenn. It's always good to have uh some Southern Hemisphere resources because as we've said, uh, you know, you and I, Chris, we we don't go there. So so I, as such, we uh, we just don't have as much uh, you know, I think knowledge or resources to share uh with everybody.
0: I did go to quasarastronomy.com.au though mm-hmm. and that looks like a great site. They have some star charts there. I think it's somehow associated with Sky and Telescope Australia. Although when I looked, they seem to have this other magazine there too. Um, and they sell planispheres and you know, like I said, other star charts. So that seemed like a great resource for people that either are, are in the Southern Hemisphere or maybe they're looking to visit like New Zealand or Australia or some other place down south. I know that South Africa has um, I forget what it's called, I, I, and I should know it. But they have another astronomy group down there that has similar uh, publications in, as well. I think we've talked about that in the past. We we really should gather all of these up. Um, I really do want to get down to the southern hemisphere at, at some point. And by really, I mean I really have to, and uh, I really should just, like corral these resources uh, not only for myself but make them available for uh, for the listeners somehow. I think it would be really great. But thank you so much, uh, Glenn, for your. Uh, for, you, for your contribution there. We, we appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So um, had a lot of submissions for observations, sketches, and images of comet uh, 2022 e- E3 ZTF. Um, so we're only going to pick like a small sampling of these to read. Um, this one comes from Matthew. It says, uh, hey, Chris and Shane, hope all is well up north with you two and that uh, you're all getting some clear nights to observe we are not. <laughs> uh, Matthew also says that he was unwell for a while. Uh, he had caught uh, COVID during the beginning of the year, but is uh, gradually getting better and uh, now has the uh, the weather to do some observing. He says, anyway, I've uh, really been enjoying the podcast while I've been under the weather. Uh, dang, that would have been great for the pun contest. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although the weather hasn't been good for several weeks, uh, the skies did clear up the night before last, which was you know, back in, uh, in the end of uh, January. And I was able to get the equipment out and get under the stars. I've been wanting to send you guys some observing logs for a while now, but still not actually uh, able to sit down and, uh, and turn his pages and notes into anything usable just quite yet. So um, since you're all uh, talking about recent uh, uh, comet observations with the c 2022 e 3 TF, I want to share my observation the comet, which I also posted on Friday Nights. He goes on to say, got the opportunity to spend several hours hanging out with the comet yesterday morning. Thanks to bad weather and COVID, this was the first chance I got to observe it this year. So I jumped all over it. The weather warmed up over the past few weeks, brought uh, some storms, but uh, astrophysics was calling for some clearing and there was very light winds with good transparency and zero cloud cover. So since I'd been up since 5.30 a.m. local time for work, I decided to set up my gear at dusk which was an 8-inch daub, some really large 25 by 115 by 70 binoculars on parallelogram mounts. He got everything lined up, went to sleep, and woke up at 3 a.m., made some strong coffee, and started observing at 3.30 a.m. and was able to observe until 6 a.m. when uh, twilight began to interfere. He uh, drank some more coffee and then uh, took a look at Mercury. He says, my setup was in my driveway." a rural area in the foothills of North Carolina that's unfortunately started trending towards Bortle 4, which is still pretty good. Although I spent some time observing with both pairs of binoculars, the majority of the time was spent looking through the scope. He was using about 100X and 40X using uh, the Delos eyepiece as well as the 30 millimeter um, ultra-flat field. He found uh, E3ZTF up in boots, and uh, it was about... Uh, 10 degrees towards the horizon. It was easy to see in his 50 millimeter finder scope. And in the eyepiece, the comet appeared as a very bright gray glow radiating out from a very bright central nucleus and looked like a defocused star. I could almost convince myself that there was some green color there, but the recent media attention probably biased me towards that. He goes on to say, I spent some more time uh and started picking up some detail especially using a averted vision and tapping the focuser i started to pick up the v fan shape and uh, to my surprise the tail was actually the most visible in my 25 by 100 meters 100 millimeter binoculars showing a well-defined short fan shaped tail with a split my 15 by 70 show the comet and tail fairly well but without as much detail as the 100 millimeters and without the split I was also super excited to watch the actual movement of the comet relative to the background stars over the course of the evening. So thank you very much for that, uh Matthew. That's uh that's really uh really nice to uh, to read somebody had some some good success. So next up, uh Richard sent us some uh, some emails or some images with uh with a short email. Shane, did you want to uh take take a read of this?
1: Yeah. Uh <laughs> I don't know where this one starts, actually.
0: <laughs> it says, <laughs> so I'm not... Richard wrote with some images. It's at the bottom of
1: page. Four or oh, yeah. Okay. So. Here we go. Hi, Chris and Shane. I listen to your podcast all the time since the article Sky News came out last year featuring you guys. Uh, Thanks for all your hard work on the podcast. Um, I'm mainly an imager, but you have inspired me to grab my 9x63 Celestron binoculars and use them while my imaging rig is set up and taking pictures, although I could not see it from my backyard in Edmonton. Uh, This was Sunday night's results with my Skywatcher 120ED uh, with a 0.85 reducer, no filter, uh, rising cam color, astro camera on top of a Celestron AVX mount. I captured 195 images of 30 seconds each, almost two hours of travel. Uh, I was surprised to find these beautiful uh, streamers coming out of the nucleus after stacking in Deep Sky Stacker and some processing in Pixins, uh, Pix, PixInsight. Uh, this will probably be my last time I'm able to get out and image it, but I was glad I did, especially after listening uh, to your "How to See the Comet" episode I just got finished uh, listening to today. Thanks again, and hope you enjoy the images. These
0: are awesome. Uh,
1: yeah, they're great. <laughs> they um, are so good. They yeah, are so the, good. The uh what did he call them? Spikes or they're like streamers. Yeah, streamers. Out. Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing. Like it it looks like a bicycle wheel almost. That's with, a good analogy. Yeah, like with the spokes kind of coming off from the nucleus. Um, there's Oh, I don't know. There's got to be 20-ish, maybe more. Just quick estimation. And, and yeah. Yeah, there's-, there's like
0: 15 or 16 really bright ones. Then the longer you look, you see more. You know what reminds me of, which I've never seen anywhere but here, and I'm sure they have them in other, other places, is um, there's these um seed pods that blow around here in the at some point in the summer or the autumn. They're pretty big. Every once in a while I find one in the house. I don't know what they're for exactly. They look like a massive version of a, uh, of like a dandelion that's gone to sea, but there's not quite as many. Mm -hmm. And that's what it reminds me. I wish I knew what, what those were, but, uh, just those, all those streamers are super neat. And we've had a few sets of images from people and a few sets of sketches, the sketches, um, most of the sketches people sent do show the fan shaped tail. Um, and then we could see like that division that, uh, that was spoken about in the previous email. And then these images, uh, really show, um, you know, uh, just, just the detail that's there. We also had uh observation here from Jim. Do you mind if I read this and maybe we'll get you to read Clint's, uh, uh, last email after this. Yeah. Sounds good. Jim observed the comet with his, uh, six by 40, or, my apologies, his six by 30 Kawa binoculars and his Canon 15 by 50 IS and his little Starblast 4.5 inch reflector. And I really, really like this combination of gear. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just like wide field Nirvana, if you ask me. He's got a really low power, small binocular that's easy to handhold. He's got an image stabilized binocular that has a really wide field, but you know, there's a pretty big difference between a 6X and a 15X binocular. So that's a huge jump. Um, and then with the IS, he's going to see even more of a bump and then the star blast is uh, is really going to take him into that nice wide field telescopic range so what a what a great combination of gear jim has and jim also wrote us this amazing observing report i hope we can put more of that in a future show he's on an expedition or a mission i think is what it like an actual mission with nasa right now so in the future we're going to try to get into that for this one though jim goes on to say the comet appeared fairly large and looked kind of like the M13 globular cluster does in handheld binoculars, only bigger. The head of the comet may have presented as a brighter core closest to the leading edge. Try as I might with averted vision, I could not see a tail, even when I maxed out my averted imagination. My point for those that don't make it to a dark site is to try to view it with any binoculars every chance you get. Plus, practicing finding it in the city will make finding it from a dark site that much easier and your early morning viewing time that much more productive. So I really like that because when I found this as well, sometimes I will go and just try to find stuff in the city or under lesser skies, or even if I'm at my dark sky site and I have several nights, but I have a night that's just maybe the transparency just isn't that great. And I say like it's finding fields. I always call this like the finding fields night. And I go out and I'm like, well, I want to see these things. They're not going to be visible tonight, but I can kind of get the star punter. I can get the get the general finding the right area down. And then I know what the what the the area looks like without that thing in it. And then I go out hopefully like the next night is going to be clear. And then I can go out and find it. Well, he's kind of doing the same thing from the city. So he's got um some pretty good gear and then uh, especially great gear for looking at comets or relatively bright comets with. And so he's finding the field, he's getting some observing in, in the hopes that maybe he gets out to a dark sky site, or he might not be able to get to a dark sky site, but at least he gets some observations of the comet in. doesn't quite get that that tail um, that maybe he was looking for. But the other thing is, is that um, maybe on subsequent nights, Jim is able to get out and he gets a slightly better night from the city or finds a slightly better spot or you know, maybe there's a little blackout or something, and he gets lucky, and then he's able to uh, to see that tail. But regardless, he was able to get out and to uh, and to see uh, to see that comet as well. So I really like. I think that's a that's a good story for making good use of of your time with your equipment and trying to see stuff, even if uh, the conditions aren't quite ideal. Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right, um, how about Clint? Yeah. Uh, so Clint says, uh, for Christmas, my wife bought me a new heated vest and some heated insoles. I figured the cold night, the cold clear night was perfect for testing the new gear. Uh, I was also, or sorry, it was also likely the only chance I would have to see the green comet. Uh, it was minus nine degrees Fahrenheit here. So negative 23 Celsius. Um, I am pleased to say that the heated clothing works wonders. Uh, I could have stayed out, uh, until the batteries died. The only part of me that got cold was my hands while holding the binoculars. I did not stay out long and did not go to my dark site. I just looked from the backyard. Uh, The comet was not obvious naked eye, uh, but was not difficult to find in my 10 by 50 binoculars. Right now, the comet is sitting about three-fifths of the distance between the Big Dipper's pointer star and Polaris. Uh, There are two six-magnitude stars just off to the west of it, making confirmation fairly certain. Uh I definitely could not see any green coloration in the comet and I did not notice any tail. I have heard that in the right lighting it is possible to see the dust tail and an ion tail. Perhaps if I had gone to my dark site I would have had better results. What I did notice was a bright core and a rather large cloud roughly uh, 10 is that arc minutes or arc seconds in diameter. Um The cloud was slightly oval shaped, but nearly round. After finding it in the binoculars, I thought I could just make it out naked eye while using averted vision, but I'm not certain if I could really see it or if my brain was just trying to see something that my eyes were not. Uh, My skies are too light polluted to see the six magnitude stars to the west of the comet without the binoculars. And I feel the comet was not much brighter than these stars. Uh, Perhaps it would be possible if I got up early when the moon set, but I like sleep too much for that clear skies, Clint. Um, I could certainly uh, uh, understand the heated clothing comments. They really do make a huge difference, uh, particularly in those cold temperatures. It's just, uh, It's heaven, you know, to observe with that heat source going and, and Clint's, uh, observations really match quite closely what I saw in my backyard with my 12 by 36 binoculars, um, was it a week or two ago, I can't remember Mm -hmm. Chris, but Mike, uh, our observing friend who was on the podcast just a few episodes ago, uh, sent us a text message that he was observing the comet. And um, I was busy watching TV and doing a few other things around the house that I didn't even realize it was clear out. So I quickly put on my heaviest winter jacket, my heavy boots, grabbed the binoculars, And, uh, it took me a a couple sweeps, uh, through the field to find it, but yeah, it is quite large. Um, certainly could make out the nucleus and this kind of oval cloud that he was talking about. And, uh, similarly, I was unable to see the tail, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, it was quite obvious and, uh, quite large is what I would say.
0: So you, you have some of the heated clothing as well, don't
1: you? Yeah. I have a heated jacket and I have uh, heated gloves. Okay. Um, I'm not loving the gloves all that much. Um, part of it is just the design. Okay. The battery pack sort of sits on top of your wrist and oh, it's okay. somewhat large. So it like interferes with my watch and it sometimes it's hard to, um, like get tucked in nicely into my jacket. So I, I really haven't used the gloves all that much, mm-hmm. but the jacket is outstanding. Um, okay. I can be out in, you name, like the coldest night, you know, possible. (laughs) Um, And well, the one test that I did, I just sat in the backyard for 45 minutes without moving on a night when the base (laughs) temperature was like minus 32. And there's a wind chill factor that was closer to minus 40. And I had my binoculars and I just observed. And after about 45 minutes, I went indoors just because I was done observing, but it wasn't because I was cold.
0: That's, that's amazing. And, uh, I'm sure your neighbors enjoyed that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I gotta get some of this stuff, uh, in particular, I think I'd miss that they've made these heated insoles. So in generally, in general, I'm not too bad everywhere else. Although I notice, um, this is what I noticed. This is when I think I need it. So typically when it's super cold, like when we're getting minus 40 or even colder, um, um, I'm not going out as much as as I did when I was uh, you know half my age, and uh, but I do like to go out when it when it warms up. So for example, even yesterday I went out and I went out to, uh, to check on my cabin, and uh, and it had warmed up to only minus five. So it's not really that cold out at all. But I was out kind of walking around, and my feet were freezing. So were my wife's, and uh, you know, and I always forget this, but when we have really, really cold weather for like several days or a couple of weeks or sometimes even a month, if we're not lucky, um, we can get a month of minus 30 or colder and that cold goes into the ground. And then when it warms up, that cold comes out of the ground. So even though in general, the air temperature six inches and above the ground might be at, uh, oh, I don't know, like minus five or whatever, um, that layer right in contact with the ground, if your feet are in, in contact with the ground at all, can be like minus 20 still. And I find it just goes, it's like coming out of the ground. So it's just penetrating your feet. And my feet were freezing, even though minus five is not cold at all. And I've certainly been out uh, for long periods of time wearing the exact same clothing and not had any any cold feet at all at minus five. So I think I got to look at getting a pair of these uh, of these uh, heated insoles. I, g- I got to get a pair of these for sure, I
1: think. Yeah. I've never tried those. Um, I, what I did is I bought some, uh, the brand is Baffin boots and they have, okay. you know, different degrees of insulation and, and I bought the heaviest insulated ones that they have and <laughs> they're outstanding. Um, but again, they're more for, if you're going to walk three or five, three to five kilometers, you probably want more of a hiker. These yeah. are more, you know, you're, you're probably not moving a lot and ideal for astronomy really.
0: Yeah. I got to get something like that too, because, like now that I have a, a place where I can go and observe, um, you know, and and go in and take my boots off and then just put them on just when I'm observing. Cause that's one of those things. Like I think a boot like that might be difficult to drive in, right?
1: Uh yeah, probably a little bit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> probably not recommended. Like driving with a pair of uh flippers on, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh anyway, but uh like in the fall when I was going out and there was some cold days and I was observing. Um, I was still just wearing my hiking boots that I kind of wore when I drove out. I took an extra pair of sneakers out with me, but, uh, I think I needed some, some warmer boots for those nights. But, uh, anyway, with that, Shane, um, do you have anything else to, to add? We got through a few listener emails. There's absolutely no way we can now read all the listener emails we get in the run of a week, but we are, we do certainly read them all. And, uh, I think we're still pretty good at replying to the majority of them.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. We do try to reply to all of them if we can. And, uh. You know, we'll, we'll have to curate some for the show uh, because like you say, there's just too many to get through, which is great. great. We love it. Oh yeah,
0: we we do love it. Um, It's very motivating to, to create the podcast and then to hear back from people um, uh, the things that people like, the things that people are observing, because uh, that really helps guide us in uh, in what we include for content and uh, the new content that we're going to try to be making here in the coming months. Super excited about some of the new things we're going to attempt to do and hopefully maybe even try to record some of our own observations uh, as we get into some warmer weather in the spring.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: With that, um, we'll sign off. And if you have any observations, uh, you know, observing reports, observing logs. Uh, If you have any show ideas or any questions for us, we're always happy to hear them. You can email us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody.
1: Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.